Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. In 2020, after the killing of George Floyd, some of the largest protests in U.S. history ensued. And yet, in retrospect, this left action group failed to usher in substantial change. Why did this remarkable grassroots movement fail? Why, in our powerful digital age, do social movements flare up but then lose steam? Why are established institutions and political parties proving to be disappointing and dysfunctional? Jesus, how did Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez go from a progressive breath of fresh air to a mainstream democratic zombie? Could it be the elites? Let's discuss. Well, here we are. Uh, Our guest today is Freddie DeBoer, who's written for many mainstream publications. And you're officially a friend of the show, uh, Freddie, because you did The Cult of Smart uh, not quite two years ago with your first book. And uh, since then, you've got a quite a remarkable Substack uh, career, which we could talk about. But uh, I am excited to talk uh, to discuss your new book, How the Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. How's the book going? How are you? Thanks for having me again. The uh, promo is going very well. Um, It's been written up into three times in The New York Times. Uh, two out of three were positive, so that's nice. Uh, <laughs> um, as far as sales, it's too, still too early to say. You know, we'll have to wait and see. But um, I'm happy with with the rollout. Well, I was listening to the podcast. Uh, Sam Harris had Yazak Monk on with with his book called "The Identity Trap," kind of similar to what you're talking about. Mm. And uh, in the first part of the podcast, they mentioned you. <laughs> mm. I hadn't uh, heard that. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, they were trying to figure out what to call all of this, uh, what's going on with the identity. He called it the identity thesis, but he said, uh, Freddie DeBoer says, just tell me what to call the damn I- ideology. I'm, I- I'm happy to call it that. <laughs> and um, so start, t- give us some background on your book. Take us back to 2020 and what prompted the book and do an overview for us. Yeah, so I uh, conceived of the book in the first few months of 2022, and I officially sold it to uh, Simon and Schuster in May of 2022, which means that the I believe the proposal was in their hands in maybe March. Um, uh, I was just looking around and constantly sort of saying to myself, weren't we just in a revolutionary moment very recently? You know, weren't we talking about um, a total change to society's relationship to race very recently? Weren't people talking about how the world would never be the same very recently? It seemed to me that um, we had had a moment of explosion in radical politics and racial politics, uh, which was all based off of very good intentions and for good and, you know, arose for understandable consequences. And then nothing really happened. Uh, and it seemed as though everyone was sort of collectively deciding, well, isn't that embarrassing? Let's just pretend, pretend like it not, never happened. And so this book was just my insistence on sort of saying like, well, hold on, let's slow down. Let's document this. Let's talk about what happened and what didn't. 
Uh, let's talk about why, and let's try to figure out if we can do something better in the future. Um, you know, the internet has uh, the memory of a goldfish, and uh, very often people want to move on, right, when their side appears to fail at something for obvious psychological reasons. But the only way you're ever going to do better is if you learn from the past. And that was what sort of was the impetus for the book. You know, we've had two guests with kind of similar themes. We had uh, Chris Parenti um, on Michael Parenti's son. And he mentioned that also that the 2020, the you know, all the excitement after the Floyd uh, fiasco and how people were so um, enthusiastic about having change. We also had Norm Finkelstein on, which is I'll burn this book when I get to it, uh, mm -hmm. which is the same general themes that you're you're talking about about how you know he he I think like you just got sick of Bernie getting rolled by. The Democratic Party being called a racist and a sexist, and mm -hmm. you mentioned that a little bit in your book, and it just infuriated him. And he he did this autopsy of what's what's going on. I, it, you know, we had the one of the largest protests in U.S. history after the Floyd, and it was by and large peaceful, <clears throat> and it incorporated all different groups of people. I was out on the streets. Mm -hmm. Um. And you've seen this, you've been an activist all of your life. Would you start with the um, uh, Occupy movement or was it before that no. tenant, tenant help or? Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the original, the first things that I kind of got involved with were some sort of vague um, uh, pro-gay, we would have called it gay rights movement uh, back in the late 90s when I was a teenager. Um, uh, sort of organizing in favor of uh, uh I mean, even gay marriage was not necessarily what we were calling for because that had not yet become sort of an issue of national contention. It was just for gay rights and gay respect and gay visibility. Um, uh, <clears throat> and then I got very, very deeply involved in the anti-Iraq war uh, uh, protest movement. I had been um, sort of radicalized by the 9-11 movement even more than my sort of theoretical politics had been before that. And they ended up spending a ton of time in the anti-Iraq war movement. I went to grad school and I didn't do a lot of organizing, although I was involved in some sort of grad student labor organizing. And um, <clears throat> I was the representative of um, from my department uh, in the grad student government uh, at Purdue, which was the body that negotiated with the, with the school for our, you know, healthcare and stuff like that. Um, and then I got to New York City and I did, um, you know, a half decade or so. Um, in New York as a tenants' rights activist, yeah. I, I do want to know, because you, you mentioned the protest, like, but this, the size and scope of this protest movement can't be underestimated. It was not just that it was unprecedented number of and size of protests in the United States. There were protests in London, there were protests in Lisbon, there were protests uh, in <clears throat> Sydney, Australia, uh, there were protests uh, in Moscow, if you can believe it. So like that that sort of spillover into the international con uh, sort of consciousness is rare. And again, it's just this was an unprecedented moment and we shouldn't forget that. Yeah, I uh, six, 15 to 26 million people in our uh, in our country. And then it sparked this through this digital, powerful digital age. It just was uh, like a brush fire went all over the all over the world, and then it just flared up and went out. I what what 
What's the reason? Why didn't we get police reform? Why didn't we get change? Who, who, who hijacked this? So I, I think there's, uh, you know, as you can guess by the fact that I wrote a book about it, there's multiple answers to that question. But um, I think the first thing to say is um, the failure to coalesce around a coherent policy goal is not was not just a failure of the 2020 moment or Black Lives Matter in general, which goes back to 2014 and the death of Michael Brown. Um, you can make a very strong argument that uh, the failure of the civil rights movement to continue to progress after the Civil Rights Act, um, after 1965 or, or thereabouts, the mid 1960s, comes back to that very same thing. Uh, the civil rights movement actually took a long time to get going, uh, to gather force and gather steam. Um, but when it did, it uh, very quickly, uh, after it sort of gained public consciousness, sort of set the terms for what they were looking for, the most important of which were uh, the Voting Rights Act, which made uh, impeding someone's right to vote a federal crime, which ensured that uh, if the local sheriff was present, pre preventing you from voting as a Black person, uh, then you could get federal marshals to come and enforce your right to a vote. So that was obviously very important. The Civil Rights Act is sort of an omnibus piece of legislation that bans all kinds of discrimination based on race. Um, for example, you know, you couldn't, the lunch counters could no longer say whites only, et cetera. Um, there are victories that follow that. Um, uh, victories against housing discrimination are uh, were a really big deal that were largely secured in the late 1960s. But by and large, after about the mid 1960s, the civil rights movement runs out of steam. Uh, Martin Luther King said so himself. <clears throat> the civil rights movement's inability to continue sort of um, making victories happen uh, <clears throat> leads to the empowerment of the Black Power movement, um, epitomized by the by the Black Panthers, but also the Nation of Islam, as you know, run by Elijah Muhammad and later Louis Farrakhan. Um, <clears throat> and through, through to today, there's just a lack of what exactly do we want to be the policy ask on the issue of racial equality and racial justice. So I think the, the first thing is um, <clears throat> no one really came down to any actual sort of demand. To the degree that there was a demand, it was to fund the police. Uh, as I detail in the book, that demand was problematic, number one, because no one could agree about what it meant, but number two, because we were never going to get it even if they could agree. Um, and so there was no sort of sense of like, even, okay, we know what we want, even if we can't get it right now. There was a bill called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Bill, which was a federal, excuse me, uh, a federal uh, bill uh, of uh, criminal justice reform that had many provisions in it, many of which were good provisions that were worth fighting for. But that bill was caught in the middle because it was seen by uh, activists as being a watered down compromise. And it was seen by conservatives as being anti-police. And so uh, when it died a death in Congress, nobody really mourned for it. But it was the sort of thing that could have actually happened and could have gotten done. And then the, the other major element of why nothing happened is, as you, as you alluded to, um, <clears throat> the whole thing became institutionalized. The institutions that were supposedly speaking out in favor of the Black Lives Matter movement and the organic uh, street pro protests effectively co-opted them Take, took over the movement, grabbed the reins, grabbed the national attention, and institutions have a tendency by nature 
um, to uh, favor uh, symbol over real change. Greg, you, you've been an activist longer than any of us. Uh, didn't you work on the Eugene Debs uh, work with him or? You yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I, I, mentored, <laughs> well, you, I mentored Eugene Debs, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, you know, I mean, you've been through a lot of these movements. No, I, really I, I, I enjoy listening to, uh, to, to, to Freddie talk about the, these different things because he's absolutely right. I mean, you, you have to stop and think about how these things got uh, knocked off the tracks, whether it's the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, the um, Occupy movement, on and on. He's he's uh, spoke to it very well. And it is a question of hijacking on one side, and I think mistakes on the other side. And they and 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 he's right about it being complex. I mean, both those things play a role in it. I think you look at uh, take DSA. Let's talk about something neutral, a political movement that comes from nowhere and suddenly has ninety thousand members, and now today it's in profound crisis. You have to ask yourself why. You know, why do these things go the way they go? And obviously, a lot of it's the way they organize themselves, the way they put forward. I think Fred mentioned earlier the the uh, how they develop issues and so forth. But it's also <clears throat> the channeling into the Democratic Party. I don't think you mentioned that yet, but I'm sure you'll talk about it. But much of this gets channeled into the Democratic Party, into electoral politics, and it sucks the life out of it. If you go back to the civil rights movement, once you enact the legislation, that kind of sucks a lot of the life out of it. People think it's settled. And anti-war movement, once once uh, uh, there's movement in the Democratic Party to stop the war as well, it sucks the life out of it, so on and so forth. So you have that outside co-opting. I think that's your title alludes to that when you talk about the elites. But it is complex. And, and uh, I really appreciate uh, the fact that you're exploring this. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, let's talk more about that. Well, I mean, look at let's look at like, like gay rights, for example. Um, <clears throat> if you run in sort of lefty circles, like I do, um, there's a narrative that you hear fairly often, which is that essentially cisgender gay men um, fought for gay marriage. Uh, <clears throat> they got it, and then they immediately depoliticize, right? Um, now, uh, they essentially wanted something, were part of a radical movement, um, went to the Pride Parade and, and uh, demanded change and, and showed up in Washington. And then when they got what they wanted, they sort of dispersed to life in, you know, uh, townhouses and in sort of Tony sort of like comfort. Uh, and now that gay people have respectability. Obviously, that's a massive generalization. And I'm not sure if I agree with that uh, characterization in general. Um, but at the same time, um, it's interesting because people deride that as sort of this horrible, lamentable condition where these cisgender gay men have all this privilege, and then once they got what they wanted, they abandoned the rest of the movement. Because in a certain sense, that's what we're fighting for, right? Like the the right to become normal people, right? The right to just be sort of become part of uh, the tapestry of American life in a way that's sort of not threatened. And now gay marriage is codified in this country, not merely through Supreme Court precedent, but now through uh, actual federal legis legislation passed by Congress. Um, uh, you know, that's kind of the point. Obviously, I don't want people to be depoliticized. 
And obviously, I want people to keep fighting for others, even after they have victory on their own side. But if it is, in fact, true that many gay men uh, sort of depoliticized after the fight for gay marriage, that's, that only means that, like, we've been successful, right? And, and I mean, in a very real way, if you look at, for example, the fight for trans rights, um, that's a fight for trans identity to become depoliticized in just the same way that gay identity has been depoliticized, right? Mm -hmm. Like there, there's, there's this old saying in the gay rights movement that like <clears throat> my existence is a crime, right? That, that like being gay in and of itself was a, like a radical act. And now many people argue that it is no longer a radical act. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but if it's true, like that just means that we won, right? We won that issue. And so there's a, a, a fundamental sort of cyclical thing we have to understand as people who are fighting for the normalization uh, and the better integration of minority groups into American life, that the more that we succeed, right, the more that we're creating conditions that can de-radicalize people, if that makes sense. Hey, I was thinking of you, uh, Freddie, when I read Chris Hedges' blog or Substack uh, two days ago. The title was Fascism Comes to America, the Failure of the Liberal Class to Halt the Corporate Assault on Working People Has Spawned an Ascendant Christian Fascism That's Poised to Seize Power and Radically Reshape America. So he's blaming the liberal class to um, kind of abandon the, the working class people and again substituting in the, the politics of identity. And it's just creating this ascendance of possibly, uh, you know, the next term, next Trump term. And you mentioned this pretty cleverly in your book when you were talking about a couple of old heroes of mine, Fred Hampton and Bobby Seals, who were Black Party members. Tell me about, tell me how that might relate to what Chris Hedges is saying here about yeah. uh, the class issue. Yeah, so I, I think, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that uh, I I respect Chris Hedges, but like I I personally just don't go for sort of telling people fascism is at the door because fascism has been at the door for the entirety of my political life. I mean, I, I think that there there is this this assumption now that like history began with Trump, right? Like mm -hmm. that prior to Trump, the Republicans were did not have a crazy base or something. Um, the Gingrich Revolution in the mid 1990s, if you, if you can go and you can check out, had a lot of people saying fascism was at the door, right? Like this is not, this is a cyclical element of American politics. Mm -hmm. um, I think Donald Trump is a monster. He's also the third worst president of my lifetime, right? Like, and that's, you know, it's important to, to sort of not give into the constant temptation to say, oh, okay, this time special because fascism, fascism is at the door. That said, Hedges is correct to say that, I mean, look, I, I look at the numbers in the book. Um, it's been very per persuasively argued that the sort of democratic plan of uh, maintaining a base of voters of color uh, dominating among college-educated whites will win out even as the Democratic Party continues to hemorrhage white working-class voters without college degrees. Um, Chuck Schumer famously said that uh, it didn't matter if uh, they lost Rust Belt, uh, you know, sort of white uh, uh, working class whites, um, because they would gain two votes for everyone that they lost. They would gain two votes from, you know, upwardly mobile 
professionals in the suburbs. Um, he said that in 2016, and that obviously did not work out, right? Um, Roy Teixeira is a political scientist, and uh, he was instrumental in writing. Uh, I mean, he was one of the co-authors in the book, The Enduring Democratic Majority, which was, I think, from around the turn of the century, around the turn of the millennium, which argued that the Democrats were going to have like a, a, effectively a permanent majority because uh, the racial dynamics of the country uh, were changing, and that meant that they they would always have uh, a numerical advantage. He has since walked that back completely, and he argues that, in fact, uh, the situation is far darker than that for Democrats because, um, number one, white working class voters, um, <clears throat> which are not poor voters for the record, because poor people don't vote, but like sort of like, you know, lower middle to middle class white voters who don't have college degrees uh, in general, we're talking about, um, they are uh, disproportionately represented in the Senate and in the Electoral College. That, in other words, when it comes to winning presidential elections, or especially when it comes to having Senate power, one worker who's a uh, a white working class voter in Pennsylvania is just fundamentally worth a lot more than a upwardly mobile college educated voter in California or a black voter in New York, just mm -hmm. because of the structure of American institutions. And we can lament that structure, but it exists. Um, the other uh, important thing to say is um, voters of color are not following the script. So there has been a massive movement of Hispanic voters away from the Democratic Party since John since the John Kerry election. Um, and uh, as I've tried to point out many times, um, with Hispanic voters in particular, uh, it's not clear why anyone ever assumed that they would always be Democrats. Right? The, the, the notion that Hispanic voters were always just natural Democrats never made a ton of, ton of sense to me, right? And I've said this before, but um, if I tell you to picture a voter who's someone who lives in rural Texas, who uh, owns their own cattle ranch, who's an, NA, an NRA member, and a devout Catholic, you would say, well, that person is a Republican. But that describes a perfectly common type of Hispanic uh, uh, Republican in Texas, right? In other words, um, many Hispanic Americans are coming from religious milieus, social milieus, et cetera, that we associate with conservatism. And what we're finding now is that um, race is not some all-powerful eraser that wipes away all those other attributes and makes people into good liberal Democrats. Uh, the movement from black of black voters from Democratic to Republican is numerically tiny um, and probably not very meaningful electorally. Um, <clears throat> but it does demonstrate, and this is this is almost almost entirely a movement of black men. Um, it does demonstrate again that just like you know, you assume that a race is going to support your party at your own peril, right? And so what Hedges is talking about is like, look, um, the the sort of baked in democratic assumption that over time changing demographics means that they don't have to worry about uh, <clears throat> you sort of, you know, the mythical sort of white working class voter um, just doesn't work in terms of math. Um, and it shouldn't have to be a, uh, a crisis because that's a kind of voter that not that long ago, Democrats did very well with. Bill Clinton cleaned up with those voters, right? 
I mean, that was that you, you could argue those voters were the, the Clinton base. And there's no reason why we can't appeal to them again. But you actually have to appeal to them. And appealing to them means that you have to defy the interests of, you know, the groups, right? Like the nonprofits um, <clears throat> and the lobbying groups uh, that do so much to set the democratic message. So, Greg, go back to your thesis that, I, I, you know, in, in talking with you and doing podcasts with you, I think you think the Democratic Party is a large part of the problem because of their abandonment of the working class. And I mean, how did AOC go from somebody that was just a rock star that I had all these hope in? And you look at AOC now and she's uh, she's she's well, just I, like no, a, a brain tumor or something. I don't when know. You brought, when you brought up uh, Hedges, I agree with Freddie that. Uh, I, I think we're being unfair to liberals when when Hedges says liberals have are, are, have let the working class down. Liberals never were for the working class. I mean, they never were part of any real coalition uh, mm. around the working class. They tolerated it, but but uh, you, you know the Teixeira thing is interesting because it, it justified the neglect and and just the way that Freddie mentioned it justified the neglect of of. Uh, uh, white workers, but also blacks and Hispanic because they own them. Basically, what he was saying is there's going to be a majority by 2015 of quote unquote minorities in America, and they have to vote for the Democrats. So that just justified it. But it really goes back, I think, to to the loss of the South. I mean, the Southern Democrats own the Democratic Party until the civil rights legislation occurred, and then they went Republican. And so to keep the coalition alive, the Democrats really accepted the suburban white middle class, upper middle class, as a, as a substitute, as, as a replacement. And they really own the Democratic Party now, in my view. I mean, I don't think it's a sellout of, of workers. They're, they're just playing to who owns the party. And the party is owned by, by white upper middle class suburban people who uh, also vote, and they vote all the time. And so they carry a lot of power and they make campaign contributions, much more so than the lower middle class or, or working class people. So I don't see, I, to me, it's intractable. I don't see how you can get out of the fact that Democratic Party is bankrupt because the, the people that control it now are fundamentally upper middle class, white suburban people. That's the constituency they play to. Thoughts on that, Freddie? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's fundamentally correct. I mean, I, you know, <clears throat> there's this this very odd scenario where um, college-educated whites have become something like the base of the Democratic Party. I mean, look, like you ha you have very loyal uh, African American voters. Um, it's worth mentioning, as I say in the book, that. Uh, African-American Democrats uh, are by and large moderates and not left-leaning, that uh, since the formation of the modern Democratic coalition, the LBJ coalition, they've always been a more conservative force in the Democratic uh, coalition than a, than a liberal or, or, or leftist force. Um, but then you also have the sort of white college-educated voters. The white college-educated voters are um, numerically important for the party in terms of votes. But they are also uh, fun, uh, and you know, very importantly, they are the fundraising base 
of the Democratic Party because they're the ones with the money, right? So um, the Democratic Party cannot operate under its current conditions without a lot of donations from doctors and lawyers and engineers and muckety mucks at nonprofits and you know um, and people at, at tech firms that you know the, the the party absolutely needs their money. If you look at the Democrats' approach to taxes, they say the right things about raising taxes on the wealthy. They define the wealthy as people who make more than $400,000 a year. Now, there is a whole sort of group of people who make between $100,000 and $400,000 a year that you could tax more, who are in historical terms not taxed very highly at all, and who are numerically much larger than the people making $400,000 and up. Uh, and you'd think, well, that'd be a constituency that the Democratic Party would want to tax, but they never even propose anything like that. Even AOC doesn't talk about that. Why? Because that's the fundraising base of the Democratic Party, and they don't want to piss them off, right? Um, <clears throat> also, they're the people who are sort of the culture war foot, foot soldiers of the Democratic Party, right? Like, they're the ones writing the New York Times op-eds. They're the ones who go on Twitter and yell and scream, right? They're the ones sharing political memes on Instagram. They're the ones who have cultural capital and cultural influence. And so on the one hand, this all sounds kind of great for the Democratic Party that you have this uh, these, these loyal foot soldiers who have money and they're, they're cultured and educated and they have political influence. But the problem is, is um, the, the party is increasingly beholden to them and increasingly afraid of doing anything that uh, that bothers them, like raising taxes on people who make $100,000 or more, um, but also like defying their assumptions on sort of culture and race. I mean, you can look at the, at the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign as a referendum on, uh, you know, what the Democratic Party thought the college-educated whites wanted to hear, right? Like, why were there so many celebrity sort of glamour sort of events going on? when she never campaigned in Michigan or, or, or Wisconsin, right? Uh, why were there bizarre tweets with academic vocabulary that almost nobody can understand? Well, the reason for all of that, right? Wh why have your campaign team be in Brooklyn, uh, which you, you know you're going to win in New York, you could put it many other places and sort of demonstrate to everyone that you're interested in winning other places than New York and, and California. Um, you know, it was all one big signaling fest to the people who now make up the funding base, the intellectual base of the Democratic Party. And um, I mean, look, it's a powerful constituency, right? I think that there are real hindrances for the Republicans that they don't have any educated voters anymore. Um, but it's also just a terribly difficult conundrum of how do you expand your reach to people um, who are outside of the sort of cultural and social assumptions of the sort of liberal college-educated Democrats. You know, one, one of the things, uh, uh, Pat, that's impressed me most about Freddie's recent work is the fact that he recognizes a class division in this, this discussion, which uh, some of our guests in the past have not recognized that division. When you talk about identity politics, for example, uh, identity politics fits in nicely with a, a black middle class, upper middle class. I live in a neighborhood that's the, one of the few integrated neighborhoods in the city of Pittsburgh. To my left is an all-white, upper-middle-class white enclave, which has more 
Black Lives Matter signs than any place in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. uh, and they go for all the signaling and so on. And to my right is a, a very poor black neighborhood, almost 100% black neighborhood. There's no recognition in much of the talk about race today. I think Freddie has recognized that mm -hmm. quite well. And what that means is that the, these white liberals to my, to my left get away with all the signaling, as you call it, signaling, all the, all the, the uh, uh, etiquette of uh, anti-racism. They don't say the wrong words. They don't, they, they'll, they welcome people into their coffee clutches, but it's all white and they do nothing and they want to do nothing for impoverished black people. We still have ghettos in America. The language is never used, but to my right is a ghetto, literally a ghetto. And, and, and so that's lost in all this discussion. And, and, and so it helps us understand what identity politics on the racial dimension really comes to. And it comes to signaling rather than doing anything about the plight of majority of black people in America. Agreed. Freddie, my, my, my favorite chapter in, in your book by far was the nonprofit uh, industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've had on a um, very prominent uh, attorney and fellow used to work at the uh, uh, um, United Nations uh Alfred Dazad, who also talked about the nonprofits and the NGOs <clears throat> unintentionally screwing up things in the in the United Nation. I, I'm an educator. I was a director of research. I have firsthand seen how Bill Gates screwed public education more than just about anybody. Unintended, unintended consequence. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part of what I liked about your your um, um, chapter on the nonprofits is you don't have to intentionally have to be evil to cause harm with your interactions. T tell us about your tell us about the nonprofits and how they figure into this. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned the groups before, right, which is a term that's used by uh, you know, uh, journalists who work in DC. It's used by staffers on uh, uh, for congressional offices, um, <clears throat> and the groups are the sort of pressure points of uh, modern American politics. Um, you have ones that are very sort of old, like the, like the uh, Federalist Society, or you have the, uh, the Ford Foundation, um, but you also have newer groups like Sunrise, which is a uh, mostly climate change-oriented sort of lefty organization that's become very prominent in Democrat uh, spaces. Um, these organizations have outsized influence uh, within our process. Um, <clears throat> they uh, are often groups that have both 501c3 and 501c4 designations. So for people who don't know, uh, when you talk about donating a tax-free donation to a nonprofit group, the nonprofit part, um, <clears throat> that is uh, uh, usually a 501c3, which is uh, a group that uh, uh, can receive charitable donations with a tax break, but which has certain uh, sort of, uh, you know, supposedly strict regulations on engaging in political uh, 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 campaigns and uh, giving to, to candidates, for example. Um, however, many of these groups have both a 501c3 phase and a 501c4 phase. And uh, <clears throat> The 501c4 can do direct sort of political groups, sort of organizing. 
the sort of firewall in practical terms that's meant to exist between those two sides of the sort of what are essentially the same organizations often doesn't really exist. Uh, and there's sort of, you know, there's regulation, but there's uh, in many cases sort of minimal enforcement. Um, these groups uh, <clears throat> are, again, subject to the capture of donors and they are subject to the capture of staffers. So uh, any sort of left-leaning organization that is uh, designed to push the Democrats in a particular di direction and to sort of achieve victory on particular policy goals uh, is going to overwhelmingly be staffed with college-educated Democrats. They are going to be vastly disproportionately uh, represented from schools that are elite schools, schools that are very hard to get into. So I, I have to constantly sort of uh, tell people who don't know, but um, the average high school senior never even applies to a school that rejects more students than it accepts. So going to like an exclusive college or an elite college is very rare, but these people are almost all from those environs. They take with them a certain amount of uh, <clears throat> vocabulary and philosophy and understanding of the world. When they look out at the world, what they see is their own experience reflected back at them. Uh, and unfortunately, elite college campuses are not representative of, of the world writ large. So those are the people who staff these, uh, these organizations. And then uh, <clears throat> the donors to these organizations, again, are the left-leaning people who, are who have money, who are dominantly urban-dwelling, college-educated professionals who live a life that is not like, not just people in the sort of rural conservative hinterlands, but also lives that are not like those of the average Black or Hispanic person. Now, that is sort of setting up these institutions to have sort of like overly radical orientations. And yet they tend to be fundamentally conservative in how they actually act and work and in their effect in the world, because um, you can't underestimate <clears throat> the dedication to perpetuating themselves among these organizations. In other words, any nonprofit, no matter what its stated goals are, uh, its actual first priority above anything else is to continue existing, right? It's to continue to exist, to continue to pay its staffers, uh, it's to continue to sort of perpetuate itself and its mission. So this didn't make its way into the book, but um, <clears throat> in researching, I found uh, a couple of nonprofits that uh, had been founded with the explicit goal of eradicating smallpox that are still around, right? Um, <clears throat> I believe the last case of smallpox in the wild was in the 1970s, right? Um, you might think, if you're a naive person, that these nonprofits would say, okay, well, look, we eradicated smallpox. It's the most successful eradication of a disease in the history of human of humanity. Uh, we'll we'll close up shop and call it a day. That is not what they did. They rebranded to be generalist health organizations. Why? Because the people who work there still want jobs, right? Right. right. They, they they don't want their 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 livelihood to cease to exist. There's always this sort of self perpetuating function that is baked into these organizations, uh, and so it tends to sort of. Uh, compel them to be careful about the sort of goals that they call for. And again, um, 
if we really wanted to fund a significantly larger social safety net, if we wanted to have like a Scandinavian style uh, social state, we'd have to raise taxes on not just the 1%, but the top 20%. And again, Democrats don't want to do that. And the, the sort of the donors who fund these organizations don't want to do that because that's who they are is the top 20%. Um, and so these organizations tend to focus very heavily on cultural issues, social issues, and to back off of uh, sort of uh, pocketbook issues of basic sort of uh, economic justice and economic fairness. So they tend to, to be fixated extremely uh, uh, tightly onto issues of symbolism and culture and culture war, because those allow them to rattle the drum and to get donors to keep donating um, without threatening uh, the their donation base, which is always their first uh, priority. And I, in the book, I quote a woman who who ran the Wikimedia uh, Foundation for a long time. She was she was the the person who kept the lights on at Wikipedia, and she says fundamentally you know any organization of this nature its fundamental issue will always be fundraising and over time the nonprofits become factories for having black tie dinners to in order to fund themselves rather than to do whatever it is they're meant to do right i i'd like to before we finish i want to talk about your writing both your writing and greg's writing i'm it just flabbergasts me how prolific you both are. Uh, Greg is a writer for Marxist Leninist Today and has his own blog. I'm trying to get him to start a Substack, but he's he's uh, set in his ways. Two years ago, you were living in a small little place in Park Slope and struggling to you know, just just struggling with your writing, and you are a poster boy for a successful sub Substack. And what I like about both of your writing is you are so eclectic. I mean, you write about sports, you write about politics, you write about your the, your most recent one was a story of the mental health issue and lack of mental health. Um, uh, you write about education. Greg does the same same thing. Uh, the topics are prolific. I mean, are 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 quite eclectic. Should Greg start a Substack? Are you happy with it? Are you happy with how you're communicating with people in that format? So uh, I would start with like the CMS, the actual sort of website and the functionality. Um, I, I have to give it up to Substack. I uh, It has everything that I want in terms of being a writer. It is significantly better than when I started in early 2021. Uh, and they have made a lot of improvements that it's a much more stable and better product now. Um, I am fundamentally like platform agnostic. I, I try not to get too invested in, in platforms. And um, I'm very grateful to Substack for what they've done to me. Um, I've let them know that, you know, I know that I could I could decamp for someplace else and bring my readers with me. I'm not, you know, I'm not sort of worried about that. But I think Substack is as good as a place as any. And um, they do make the um, <clears throat> ability to get paid uh, seamless, mm -hmm. which is not true. Like if I was still on WordPress, I could do it, but then I'd have to sort of have MailChimp handle the email and then I'd have to set up my own thing through Stripe or something like that. 
I'm I'm fundamentally kind of incompetent at pragmatic stuff, at sort of administrative stuff. So that that helps a lot. But it's like anything else, you know. Um, I I think that I you know I've been successful in this industry because I I do believe that my work is very good, but also like there's just been so much weird chance and you know like network effects going into it. I mean, I started blogging in 2008, which was right. an interesting time to start blogging because blogging had already become kind of uncool by then. Um, like the big players like Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein and Andrew Sullivan, like they had all already gone to back to traditional media, right? Like they, they had already sort of um, left sort of independent blogging behind when I started an independent blog. But that being said... I started early enough that like you could still sort of insert yourself into the conversation. Um, and I was just kind of a pain in the ass in the comments of other people's blogs until they paid attention to me. And that's how I sort of got, you know, the ability to sort of have an audience. Um, and so it's like anything else. It's like, <clears throat> you know, being good is important, but it's also neither necessary nor sufficient. You know, I mean, um, it's very possible that if I had tried to start in 2011 rather than 2008, nobody would have ever heard of me, right? right? Because um, because there's just there's network effects, right? Like people, part of the reason people have signed up is because um, uh, they they've just heard my name for so long. That being said, um, it is it's like there's never been a harder time to just get paid and make a living being just a writer, but it's, it's never been easier to make some money being a writer, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have like, a, to me, like the sort of classic Substack thing for me is not people like me. <laughs> and for the record, I make like a quarter of what Matt Iglesias makes, right? So there's people who make a lot more than I do or, or a third or something. Um, but uh, like the to me, like the, the, the real Substack success story is not, people like me who like who can just do this for our profession. The real Substack success for story is the number of people who make, you know, um, $800, $1,500, you know, $2,000 a month. Um, and it is maybe not necessarily their profession, but it is an ability to monetize their writing in a way that they never had before. Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a good service. I wouldn't say it's any better than rolling your own on WordPress or something else. Um, I wouldn't say it's any better than Ghost, which is a uh, competitor. Um, <clears throat> but it is very, it is a very good CMS, and it it really is painless to start getting paid. Um, but it's like anything else in the industry right now. Um, <clears throat> it is an extremely crowded field at the exact same time as a lot of the legacy publications that could pay you are dying. So you know and they and they are they are and i i think it's a little more cancel i do we say cancel culture anymore i think yeah. it can be more controversial and uh, be less prone to the histrionic um you know mobs that would come after after people you can get you have a you have a little better you just got a better platform to get to the truth i mean that was i do well, the I new think, york and i think I think what it's done, and I really appreciate, is it's bought independence. And yeah. That's what I see. I mean, I can't speak for Freddie. He has to make, you know, he, he can he can make that call himself. But 
in the two years since he's been on before and now, I've seen this giving him a kind of escape from academia mm -hmm. and a level of independence that I find very exciting. I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know you well enough to know what your future holds. I mean, you might become bought off in the future for all I know. I'm not <laughs> predicting that. But, but where you are now, to me, is a very good place. Right. And very few people have that independence. Yeah. And I've got it because I'm old and I'm retired. And I give a shit what people think about what I say. And so there's no, 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 no one's going to buy me off. But uh, you're making a good living. I understand that you're making a good living. And I think that's going to buy you and has bought you the chance to become mm. uh, uh, much more influential. But not right. just influential in terms of becoming a celebrity or a brand. But in saying interesting things, what Pat alluded to earlier about writing about a lot of different topics and writing well about them, that's so important. Right, right. So, uh, I'm, I'm excited. I hope others will follow your, your, uh, your path. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll link to it for sure. I, it's an absolute must. But you have to make a living. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, I, uh, um, if I can continue to do this to pay the bills and then write books and keep writing books, which, you know, is like a, a Hail Mary to sort of have some sort of permanence to sort of what I'm doing, you know, something that will, that will maybe last a little while, um, then that may be very happy. I will say, like, look, it's, you know, um, I definitely value the level and kind of independence that I have, but it's like, um, I don't have a boss. I have 6,000 bosses, right? Like, in like the people who, who pay to subscribe. In other words, like we all, we all got to serve somebody, right? Like there's, there's no such thing as total independence, but the kind of independence that I have I'm, is very valuable to me. And I'm very grateful for it. Do you miss Brooklyn? Yeah. I don't miss the living conditions that I lived in under in Brooklyn. Right. Like, right. um, I definitely miss Brooklyn. I miss walkability. I miss <clears throat> so many different things to see, people to see, all the variety, the wonderful things. Um, <clears throat> as someone who makes a lot of money compared to the median American, my quality of life was so absurdly low in Brooklyn because of the prices there that it's staggering that ordinary people live there. And so, you know, um, I could not possibly be happier with the improvement to my daily quality of life. I do miss Brooklyn, but like it just, everything is better for me here. So. Yeah, that's good. Well, that's good. Well, I. What do you make of uh, the election? What do, what do you make of the politics uh, of today of the moment? You've got. I don't know. I, uh, I keep Kennedy thinking. Announced, Kennedy Jr. announced that he's going to be an independent. We've got Cornell West outside the Democratic Party. What do you make of all this? Yeah, I, I think RFK Jr. is a lunatic, but I also think that, um, like, he has he has a fair grievance, which is that the Democratic Party was not going to allow any debates, uh, and we're we're clearly going to do everything possible to obstruct him in their primary. Uh, and you know, I would have much rather have him be a participant in a real open primary where Biden could then beat him if he can beat him. Um, and then, you know, we could say, okay, we've settled that. Let's move on to the general election. Now he's going to play spoiler. And, um, you know, you kind of, you got to reap, reap what you sow if you're the Democrats, right? If, if you constantly make your primary process uh, into such a uh, <clears throat> sort of closed, top-down autocratic model, people are going to go third party. As far as the, the election in general, I keep waiting for Biden's 
approval number and the polls against Trump to just sort of suddenly improve because in many of the fundamentals, particularly the economy, which is doing pretty well, you'd think that he sort of would be in a position of strength and he's just not and in terms of the polling. And I just think, I, I just don't know. It, he looks and sounds like an 80-year-old and it is not what people are looking for in a president. And um, uh, so I don't know. I, I have said the bar here is incredibly low and it still doesn't make him good. But he's in terms of at least in terms of domestic policy, he's probably the best president of my lifetime. Right. Yeah. Which is like, you know, it's like it's like Mo was the smartest of the three stooges. Right. It's not much of a it's not much of, of, of an award, but he's probably the best. And, but I don't know. I, I just think that, like, people don't want to vote for someone that they feel might die in office. And the I mean, the really scary thing, if you're a, a Democrat, is if he is unable to uh, <clears throat> be the candidate, which, again, at his age and with his health is a possibility, um, I think the Democrats understand that uh, Kamala Harris is unelectable. But trying to push her aside in favor of Gavin Newsom or anyone else would spark a civil war that would destroy the party. If you try to if you try to move aside Kamala Harris, whose approval rating is even lower than Joe Biden's, who is one of the least naturally gifted politicians I've ever seen in my life, if you try to if you try to push her aside for somebody else, especially a white man like Gavin Newsom, it will start a civil war that will destroy the party. Uh, and I, you know. It just that just seems like a very bleak potential outcome to me, but well, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Our, our next podcast is uh, with um, uh, Teresa Mato, who wrote a book, uh, The Grand Illusion, The Myth of Voter Choice. She worked on Ralph Nader's campaign, and the, mm. the gist of the book, even it's a couple of years older, is that we just we we have one of the most dysfunctional electoral system where the two parties just kind of can destroy any opposition. And we just don't we don't have a choice. I mean, I love I, Cornell West is just remarkable. And, I, you know, why can't I vote for him? Because I'm, I'm voting for for Trump. You know, it's right. it's uh, anyway, it's bad. Yeah, agreed. Keep writing. Keep writing. You've got a couple fans on the East Coast and West Coast ready. So um, I, I wish you luck with your with this book and your future books. And um just know that every time you publish your Substack, there's a couple of people that really enjoy reading it. So, well, thanks so much for having me again, and uh, I'd like to, I'd love to come back another time. So, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Freddie.